For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet some Tucsonans who are working today to prevent water shortage tomorrow. I'll talk with Susan Clausen about her experience as a clown, entertaining the crowd as part of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Essayist Chris DeShiel looks back at an unusual film about gun violence, 1968's Targets, and hear the mysterious, mystical sound of gamelan as performed by a Tucson ensemble. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Concerns about water shortages are nothing new in Arizona. The latest predictions from federal officials may be less dire than those that were issued earlier in the year, but experts say we need everyone to pitch in to prevent future catastrophe. Here's Christopher Conover. The snow fell in the Rockies and the rains came in the spring, but Tom Bashotsky, the director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources, said in the early summer that didn't matter so much. We had good snowpack throughout the winter, but it got drier and warmer than normal. And so instead of the water from the snow making it into the river and into Lake Powell, it evaporated into the air. By the end of the summer, things were looking better. Forecasters from the Federal Bureau of Reclamation said there would be no shortage declared on the Colorado River for 2018. And if weather forecasters are correct, a wet winter could hold a shortage declaration off for 2019 also. But what if a shortage is declared? Bashotsky says the changes to Arizona water would be noticeable. Arizona loses about 11 percent of its Colorado River entitlement, about 320,000 acre feet out of 2.8 million. Uh, Water banking and replenishment of groundwater will be cut, and agricultural water users who have their water delivered by the Central Arizona Project, Maricopa Pinal, and some in Pima County will lose about half of their Colorado water supply. Those cuts only apply to agricultural users, so water will still come out of your tap at home. But some people aren't waiting for a shortage. They're conserving water now. Kathleen Marin and her husband retired to Tucson in 2015. It was not a difficult decision to want to reduce their water usage. When we bought the house, this whole yard was a sand pit, literally like a a sandbox, or you see people's front yards that are just dirt. And uh, it was sad. Kathy wanted color in her yard and found a magazine that had exactly what she wanted. But when she talked with consultants, they laughed and said no. These are not viable plants. These are not native plants to this area. And if you want to have a green garden, you got to be smart about it and use the water from the sky. So they put in two large cisterns in a narrow section of their yard. The 1,000 gallons of water helps keep the garden growing. But how much water can a rooftop really supply? Joaquin Murieta with the Watershed Management Group says plenty. There is a rule of thumb. You have 1,000 square footage of surface, you have one inch of rain, you get 600 gallons. Since the monsoon hasn't arrived yet and Tucson hasn't seen much rain since the spring, many cisterns like the one Kathleen and her husband put in have run dry. But not to worry, there's a solution for that. 
When we decided to have the laundry to landscape system in, I had a plumber come in and give me some information about how it works or what I needed to do. I wasn't interested in like big excavation or reconstruction. And uh, he said, you, you, you got to pick a plumber that has done this before and can explain it to people like me. And all he did was he took the water that comes out of the washer and instead of directly going into the sewer, he put a, a switch on it so that I can have it go out to the landscape. The piping runs out of the house and to two fruit trees and some other plants. I space out the laundry now so that in this heat like this, I water them maybe three times a week. I've harvested about 20 peaches so far. Two years later, after installing all the systems, she says she has no regrets. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. It's estimated that more than 23 million American households will tune in to the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade this year, an event that's provided the background to many a Thanksgiving gathering since it was first broadcast in 1952. The parade began in 1924, and from the start, it featured floats with animals on loan from the Central Park Zoo and an appearance by Santa Claus to signal the official start of the Christmas season. The trademark giant balloons were added in 1931, with Felix the Cat being among the first. An important element of the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade are the clowns, more than 800 of them, and one Tucson woman is celebrating her 15th year as a proud participant. Susan Clausen is best known for her work with the Invisible Theater and her long-running show where she portrays Hollywood legend Edith Head. Susan makes the journey each year to do what she loves best, be a clown. I asked her to tell us what it's like to play a part in this unique tradition. This is the 91st anniversary. For three years during World War II, it didn't happen because of helium shortage and rubber shortage. But even when President Kennedy was assassinated and Macy's wanted to cancel the parade, Jackie said no that the parade had to go on. It was part of the heart and soul of this country. And I think that is its legacy and its history. When you were young, did you get exposed to the parade through TV? And was it something exciting for you? I know it was for me. Oh, growing up in New Jersey, I was totally addicted to the parade. So when the opportunity came about to be in the parade, and it was the year of 9-11, and I had a lot of friends in the parade and in high places at Macy's. And I was going to be in New York for a board meeting. They said, we'll get you bleacher. I said, no, I'm happy on the streets. And then about three weeks before the parade, they said, sit down, but you get to be in the parade this year. And I was like shrieking, shrieking. I was so <laughs> excited. And it was because people were nervous. They were nervous of security, so they were opening up the parade a little bit. You have to either work for Macy's anywhere in the country or be sponsored, so I was sponsored. And that year, we were funny firefighter clowns. It was a very emotional year, obviously. We followed the Big Apple float and also the, the firefighters, and they were carrying two very narrow American flags, and you saw 
clowns up on Clown Corner, like 81st and Central Park South, weeping. And then they announce, okay, funny firefighter clowns, join the Macy's Parade, lift the spirits of New York and the world, and your heart beats really fast, and you join the parade. And people are so kind, and kids want confetti, and it just lines the streets. On TV, you never get the feel of being in the parade and that energy of people hanging out from skyscrapers as you march down and it's it's an extraordinary this is my 15th performance in the parade appearance really with all the different types of theater and performance that you've been involved in how would you rate the energy level that you need to be a clown on the macy's day parade it's a hundred percent plus but you get that from the crowd and you never know what clown you're going to be. It's assigned two weeks before. And so I've been a range of clowns from funny firefighter. I was a confetti clown. Last year, I was a patriotic clown. I've been bathing beauty clowns. I've been wedding belly clowns. So it's been a wide range. It was a joy being a Dalmatian, I have to say. The <laughs> costume was fun. black and white. What could be better? Yeah, and that has a great clowning tradition, doesn't <laughs> it? It does, it does. And uh, last year we actually had airtime. They usually cut away from the clowns. Oh, so you don't get televised that much no, is what you're saying. the clowns don't. Yeah. The clowns don't get televised. It is it is a masterpiece of organization because you go at like 5.30 in the morning, you wait outside of uh, the hotel. They've taken over the whole hotel right by Macy's. Go through your security check. The ballroom has racks and racks of costumes for every clown group or balloon handlers or character and float escorts. Your name's on a tag. You make sure you use the restroom. Because it's limited on the parade route. <laughs> Once you get out there, you can't get off that yeah, easily, right? Exactly. Right. right before we sat down in front of the microphones, you shared with me an interesting piece of information. You just found out what your character is going yes. to be this year. I'm excited. We're gnomes. So they let us know. I don't know where we'll fall in the parade, but we have kind of gnome outfits, you know, big uh, red stocking cap. And every group has a clown captain. Fortunately, in my line of work, I get to play all the time. But for many people, this is their chance to play. You know, so it's hard to wrangle 800 clowns on Clown Corner. <laughs> um, first hour of the parade, it takes us an hour to get from uptown to Herald Square. That's why they show all the Broadway shows for the first hour. Only one year did it rain. And it's so much fun after the parade when we come around and we go into the ballroom and they have you know, hot cocoa and things and the parades on TV. And then people sit and talk about the celebs, you know, who rode the whole parade route in the rain, Julie Andrews, who, <laughs> who came on like a 54th Street and rode down. So, you know, you get right. all these people who talking, took the who took the shortcut just to be on the TV in all my years of doing it. And in some very high-powered circles, when you say you're a clown in the Macy's Parade, it brings a smile to everyone's face. There's, there's nothing cynical about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's, it's just a pure joy, and it touches the hearts. And in these divisive times, what could be better than to have something that brings people together and celebrates being grateful and how blessed we all are? It's just fabulous, but my heart, every time they 
cut the ribbon and say, okay, let's have a parade. Your heart just beats fast. It's just, it's an extraordinary experience. My guest was Susan Clausen, the Managing Artistic Director of the Invisible Theater in Tucson. This weekend concludes the run of the Hollywood blacklist drama, The Value of Names, just in time for Suze to head to New York City to don her gnome apparel. NBC broadcasts live coverage of the 2017 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on Thursday, November 23rd, from 7 to 10 a.m. local time. It's a sad statement that when mass shootings occur in our nation, they're rarely granted more than a few days in the public consciousness before they're filed away to add to the growing list of gun violence statistics. In 1966, when Charles Whitman, known as the Texas Tower Shooter, took 16 lives and wounded dozens, it had a massive impact on the American psyche. So much so that two years later, the incident served as the inspiration for the first feature film, from a promising new director. The movie counterpointed the story of a young man's desire to kill with an aging actor's decision to retire from Hollywood. The result was a film like no other, as Chris DeShiel will explain. I've said many times, and only half-joking, that horror movies don't scare me. The only thing that does scare me anymore is the news. I recently saw a film that made that same point, but in a more nuanced way. It was the first movie directed by Peter Bogdanovich from 1968, Targets. Bogdanovich was a 28-year-old film critic for Esquire magazine who had made a name for himself writing profiles of important Hollywood directors like John Ford and Orson Welles. But he wanted to direct, and like many other aspiring filmmakers at that time, learned the craft working on low-budget films for the highly successful producer and director Roger Corman. After working as assistant director on a couple movies, he asked Corman to let him do a film of his own. Corman said yes, but with three conditions. The budget had to come in at less than $125,000. He needed to give a role to Boris Karloff, who owed Corman two days shooting, and he had to incorporate 18 minutes of Karloff's latest Corman picture, The Terror, into the film. The result was Targets, in which Bogdanovich ingeniously fulfilled all three conditions. The movie opens with the ending of the terror, with the credits for Target superimposed. A rare example of a film starting with the ending of another film. It's a humorously confusing way to begin a picture. In a huge castle near the sea, during a raging thunderstorm, Karloff and Jack Nicholson face off in a final showdown. And the words, the end, eventually appear on the screen about three minutes into the sequence. The lights go up and we're in a screening room. Karloff, playing an actor very much like himself named Byron Orlock, looks tired and depressed while the film's producer, seated nearby, gushes about the next film he's got lined up for him. Orlock then shocks the room by wearily announcing that he's done. 
He's retiring from movies. This is especially bad news for another person in the room, a young writer, Sammy, author of the next picture screenplay, played by Bogdanovich himself. No, I'm serious. This is a very important film. This is the kind of property I'm going to be proud to put my name on. Are you writing this down, Ed? It's a good script, Sam. Don't you think so, Byron? I'm not making any more films, Marshal. I'm retiring. Since when? What is this, a gag, Sam? Later, Sammy shows up at Orlock's hotel room in L.A., trying to persuade him not to retire, or at least to stick around for this next film, in which the actor can get to play a complex character for once. The obvious affection between Karloff and Bogdanovich makes their scenes together particularly charming. The dialogue highlights one of the most interesting aspects of Targets, the benign, practically childlike quality of the classic horror genre, which seeks to scare an audience, while at the same time, with a wink, or at least a nod, reassuring them that fear is a valid and enjoyable part of life. But interspersed with these scenes is a plot line completely different and seemingly unconnected to them. A young man named Bobby, a handsome all-American type played by Tim O'Kelly, buys a bunch of firearms at a gun store before going home to where he and his pretty young wife live with his parents somewhere in the L.A. suburbs. There's something off about Bobby. He's a Vietnam veteran, and he seems a little too rigidly cheerful to be normal. As it turns out, inside of him there's a terrifying violent urge just waiting to explode. Harry! What are you doing? You know better than that. I was just checking the elevation. That's just how accidents happen. Never point a gun at anyone. Sorry. I wasn't thinking. The character of Bobby is clearly inspired by the case of Charles Whitman, the young ex-Marine who had shot and killed 14 people from a tower on the University of Texas campus a couple years before, a case that had horrified the nation. Now, of course, 50 years later, Mass shootings have become an all-too-prevalent symptom of American malaise. That makes targets even more haunting and disturbing than it was at the time. The story of Bobby eventually dovetails with the story of Orlock, and it's a brilliant stroke of technique by Bogdanovich, both thematically and in the stunning final sequence, visually. I wonder if the young director fully realized how incisive targets really was. The contrast between Karloff's old-world grace which had invested the horror genre with a certain dignity for almost four decades, and the distinctly modern horror of the clean-cut and apparently motiveless mass murderer is deeply and painfully ironic. Targets was an entertaining, low-budget film that wasn't seen by many people at the time, but with the passing of the years has only gained in significance, not only as a tribute to a classic style of film that no longer exists, but as a prediction of frightening developments in American culture. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Whether inspired by the border culture that surrounds us or the never-ending human need to find something new, Tucson's artistic scene embraces an amazing diversity of influences and different forms of expression. Next, Dan Cruz introduces a local group, that is broken away from the traditions of Western music to explore a style where tones and rhythms create a unique and mystical atmosphere. Hearing and absorbing unfamiliar music, especially music from other cultures, can be a challenging but fulfilling experience. 
On a recent Saturday morning, I became more familiar with gamelan, a genre of music from Indonesia, and with the founders of a local Balinese gamelan ensemble, Martin and Astrid Randall. Uh, we're calling the gamelan Dawi Malam, which means Queen of the Night. I've been playing gamelan for about 26 years now, um, mostly in Santa Cruz, in California, where we used to live. He's the primary teacher because he has moved from one instrument to another, and so he knows all the different pieces that you need to know in order to put the gamelan together. Gamelan is, is really from, from Indonesia. Um, the primary centers for gamelan these days are Java and Bali. Uh, but it's hundreds of years old at least. Later on in history, it became kind of court music. During the big empires and the, you know, the royal kingdoms of Java, it was, become, it was quite important, and even kings and princes and so on were, were required to learn and play gamelan. So he came home one day and he was saying, oh, we need a gong player. Can't you just come in and be the gong player? All you have to do is hit it at the beginning and end of a cycle. I got hooked on it because it is so meditative when you play. Um, it's just absolutely wonderful. Well, so the first thing that come out are the gong stands, so we have to sort of assemble them. Uh, we keep them all in this huge cabinet that we have made specially. It's uh, got a humidifier inside it because the humidity in Bali, these instruments are all from Bali. Yeah, those two go together. I observed Martin, Astrid, and members of Gamelan Dewi Malam setting up the array of instruments that make up the ensemble, as well as cut flowers and incense. The idea is that the gods need a little bit of everything. So you have the sound from the music, you have the incense, you have the smell, and you have the beauty of the flowers and the arranged fruit. Sometimes you put little rice packets in there too. The nearest approximation to a Western instrument is probably a xylophone uh, for most of them, but they're just four-tone four xylophones. The keys are made of bronze, so they're, they're, they have a wooden frame, it's usually a jackfruit wood, wood frame, and they're, they're suspended over bamboo resonating tubes, and you play them with a, a little hammer. And it's a wooden hammer, yeah, it's usually made of grapefruit wood, which is a very hard wood with a sort of bamboo handle. This is the jagog. So that's roughly G-A-B-D. First row, row is called Pemade. Um, and then the second row is called Cantile. So they're tuned to roughly G-A-B-D on a Western scale, uh, right around middle C. Uh, the front row and then the, the back row, the cantiles are an octave higher than that. And then we have the big gong at the back, or sometimes more than one gong. Careful. Well, we're just putting the gong poles together, and they have this um, very thin metal striping around it to make them look pretty. But the gong is the, the beginning and the end of a cycle, like death and rebirth which is how the Balinese look at things. But I also play the timekeeping part, which is that metronome grid, and to have that metronome is important to keep everything from not drifting apart. That's the timekeeping part, the grid. So we just need one, two across. one mat for the back and then two in the front. So if you want to put that one here, 
So yeah, so gamelan instruments are tuned um, essentially plus and minus uh, nominal pitch. So one of one is a little bit higher and one is a little bit low. So then when you play them together, they shimmer, they sort of beat against each other. So that creates this beautiful shimmering sound that you hear in Balinese gamelan. Well, it's certainly very different from Western music. Some people find it a bit cacophonous, you know, sort of, I mean, to me it sounds, it sounds just quite fascinating. It's very exotic sounding. To some people it might be an acquired taste. I think if you understand a lot of, you know, more of the background behind it, that certainly helps. You know, we're always looking for new players. We've got maybe 10 people, I think, right now. So if we had, you know, four more players, or even more, that would be great, you know. Uh, in Bali, they'll typically have 20, 30 people in a gamelan. At Gamelan Dawi Malam's rehearsal, I also spoke with other members of the group, including Cheryl Forte. Cheryl's involvement with the group is her first experience with gamelan music. And my initial impression was, because I had heard some gamelan recording, it seemed a little intimidating, but um, I figured, well... <laughs> I, t I told Martin, I don't know if I have the aptitude for it. And he said, what's more important is um, perseverance and willingness. It's perhaps that, that quality of simply being exposed to something very different. Since as far back as I can remember, music in all its different forms has been my way of feeling at one with the universe. Why does it touch our hearts? Why does it engage our minds? It's such an amazing, an amazing experience. When you're first learning a piece, you know, you're so focused on getting your part right, just concentrating on your own sound, and it's all just kind of not, not quite perfect. But, but once you get to the point where you play your part without even thinking about it, you've just played it so many times, you just can, your mind can just kind of step back. And now you're listening to the group as a whole, and you're listening to the music that's being generated. It's almost like singing. And we just got to the point where with some pieces we we're getting to that and where some of the players were actually commenting on this. It's like, oh wow, this is just amazing. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Dan Cruz. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. 
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.